0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Grace, Carter, thanks for leading us so well. It's been a delightful beginning of our worship and time together, so thank you uh, so much. Like Carter mentioned, this is the last week in our series on Inhabits, where we've been exploring the choices we make or the choices we can make and how they can affect who we become. We've talked about, as humans, we are always being formed. Whether we're aware of this or not, we are all always becoming something. Whether that be because of the environment around us or the community we're immersed in, the people around us, the choices we make or the choices we don't make, we're being formed moment by moment. And as a community of people here at FAC, we want to be both attentive and intentional about who we are becoming and how we are building our lives on the firm foundation of who God is and his word. And so we've been talking about how does this happen? How does this happen? James K. Smith wrote a brilliant book on the power of habit and how it affects our formation. It's called, You Are What You Love. And he begins his book by explaining how modern society, AKA the world we all live in, basically treats humanity as brains on a stick. <laughs> Rene Descartes, philosopher, summarizes much of our world's thinking, our society's thinking, when he defines the essence of humanity by saying we are all merely thinking things. Maybe you've read Descartes, maybe not, but many of us likely know his quote, I think, therefore I am. Basically, our society, our modern world, believes because we think, we exist. And the rest, our body That's basically just the vessel to carry your thinker around. Education theorist Bell Hooks calls this a banking model approach to humanity. We basically treat humans as uh, deposit boxes for knowledge. And we think people will just naturally live out of that knowledge and go from there. If this were true, however, then we would all know that changing our mind would change everything about us. And we know that's not true. Think back to week one. We can change our mind about how much water we should drink or how many veggies we should eat. But if we don't actually change our habits on how much water and veggies we drink, that's not gonna make one difference in our lives. Our mind, to be clear, is a fundamental part of our existence and a fundamental part of our formation. Be renewed by the transformation of your mind, but it's not the only thing. We are holistic people, created body, mind, and soul. And our formation is more than just information acquisition our thinking and our practices or our habits form us. And so for this final week, we're looking at both, how do we engage with people best? And what does it take to do that? Well, how do we go to this world? Well, what do we need to do for that? And so to help us, engage in this habit, I want us to look at Mark chapter one. Now, if your phone's off and that's your Bible, there's Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. Um, Mark one, uh, (laughs) it was funny when Carter was like, okay, now slide your phone off. And you could just see so many people in the room, like, nah, put the phone (laughs) back in their pocket. You had me until that moment, okay. Uh, There's a Bible in the seat back. Um, Mark one is basically a long description of the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It shows us uh, Jesus emerging on the scene as an adult at his baptism. And then it shows Jesus was sent to the wilderness for 40 days. After that, Jesus reemerges and has one of the most full ministry days Ever. And that's what we're looking at This really full day in the life of Jesus It starts by Jesus recruiting Simon or Peter And his brother Andrew, James and John Then that little posse, they go to the synagogue where Jesus starts to teach, shows up on the scene, starts preaching at the synagogue. While he's doing that, there's this spiritual showdown that takes place. And we see Jesus is clashing against the forces of darkness and Jesus drives out an impure spirit. After synagogue, they go to Simon Peter's childhood home where Jesus is told, that Peter's mother-in-law is ill and he heals her. And then they start to have dinner. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story. Uh, Mark one, verse 32, it says, "'That evening after sunset, "'the people brought to Jesus "'all the sick and demon-possessed. "'The whole town gathered at the door "'and Jesus healed many who had various diseases.'" He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Like I said, a very full day in the life of Jesus. I wanna start with the beginning. Jesus had this amazing moment at the synagogue, right? He's preaching and people are like, whoa this guy preaches with some authority. There's a a power here. This isn't my great grandma's rabbi. Like something's going on here. They're intrigued. They're they're, they're curious. They're like, this is different. This guy has something different. And then Jesus drives out an impure spirit and they're like, well, okay, hold. He's got that kind of power. He doesn't just preach interestingly. There's something more going on here and they're curious and they want to experience more. I love how every word in the Bible is intentional, like every word. So, you know, you read this and it says like after sunset and you're like, okay, just that's a timestamp kind of, but also Mark is like, they were all at synagogue. They're good Jews. They're following the Sabbath. So they're waiting for the sun to go down because they know what they're hoping for needs to happen after Sabbath. And that's when their days were marked. So after sunset, people brought to Jesus. And I I just kind of, I can picture all the Jews in Capernaum. They're like, is the sun down yet? Not yet, not yet, hold. They're like watching. It's like turning into like a small sliver. Is it down yet? Not yet, wait, 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 hold, hold. Hold, the sun goes down and I picture like the entire town just rushing Simon's house. Jesus is at the table, you know, wrapping up dinner, having his pita and you just like hear like the the ground starts to shake and people are rushing and all of a sudden the sun's down, people are at the door and Jesus is like, I guess we're not having dessert today. (laughs) There's a few things I want us to recognize. It says this, after sunset, The people brought to Jesus all, the sick and demon-possessed, the whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. I want us to notice that. We're told all the sick and demon-possessed were brought to Jesus. And then I don't know if you caught it or not, but then the next passage says, and many were healed. Did you catch that difference? All were brought but many were healed. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to be honest about that gap between all who were brought and the many who were healed. Because there's a gap and it is entirely unhelpful and unwise to ignore that discrepancy. Because if we're not honest about that gap, about that reality, then we are setting ourselves up and we're setting up those around us for failure and disappointment and disillusionment or worse. If we just go, Jesus heals everyone. Well, in this passage, many were healed, even though all were brought And that's worth acknowledging for us all. Can you imagine being one of the few who wasn't healed? Being one of the few who wasn't set free? Right, Everyone's there, and most of them are. But you're not. Some here today, you don't need to imagine because you know exactly what that's like. You know exactly what it's like to see miracles take place all over, everywhere but your life. You know what it's like to see your neighbor get the thing, but not you. You know what it's like to see your coworker get the prayer request that you've been asking for, but not you, the family member, the friend. You know, we sing these songs, there's a miracle in the room. Yeah, just for everyone else. Disappointment is real and pain is real. Illness perpetuates. Frustration and confusion are legitimate. It seems like everyone is getting everything that you're asking for, but not you. So you're like, why not? I was there. I was at the right place at the right time but nothing, we need to be honest about that gap. Because if we're in that gap and we don't have an honest theology about that, it's gonna be really tough to navigate our way through. But can we challenge ourselves and wonder today for the, the people in that gap, does it make Jesus any less God, any less good, any less powerful? You know, to put it in like a a trite different way, like if I have a bottle of water and I throw it on half of you, for the half that stay dry, does that make the other people, the water, any less wet? Jesus still moves. Like we who are in the gap acknowledge the love and the care that Jesus does have. The fact that so-and-so was healed and I wasn't, that doesn't impinge upon Jesus' power or goodness or love. I'm going to say more about this in a little bit, but at the outset today, I just want us all to acknowledge sometimes there's disappointment and we don't get what we thought we should, even when we were in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Sometimes that's the story. As true as that is, I don't want us to miss the other reality though. And that is that Jesus did amazing things. People were radically transformed and radically set free. And I want us to acknowledge that too, because the truth and reality for us today is that Jesus still does this. Jesus still does this. I have felt so strongly on my heart all of this week that the most loving thing I could do today in this moment is just stand up here before all of you and remind you from the authority of God's word that Jesus still changes lives. He still moves. He still transforms. He still breaks the chains that hold us down. He still sets us free. Jesus still binds up the broken and Jesus still heals. Jesus still moves with amazing power and authority on earth. He still does this. That's who Jesus is and he hasn't changed. Has anyone heard about this last 11 days, what's happening in Wilmore, Kentucky? at Asbury University, 11 days ago, February 8th, chapel happened, for those of you that don't know, February 8th, chapel happened at Asbury University the same way it always says. You can watch the video. It's a guy, goes up, he's preaching. At the end of his sermon, he, he just like prays, like God, like, may we love you. May we spread your love and whatever he says. says, amen, and then he just kind of like jogs off stage. And uh, the band, they just start playing a little bit and almost everyone leaves. But a few stayed back and uh, they just started to sing and play along with this band. And then a few people that had left wandered back in, like, hey, what? I hear something, what's going on? And they, they come back in. And then a few more people come back in. And then a few more people come back in. And then a few more people come back in. And then all of a sudden, that 1,500 person auditorium is full. So full, that there's a lineup to get in. So they open up the other chapel, which that fills up. This weekend, they have five different spaces, all full of people worshiping, and there's lines to get in. And for 11 days, 24 hours a day, there's been worship happening. And people are like, this is a move of God in a pretty profound way. There's all kinds of testimonies coming out of people having their lives transformed. People radically meeting Jesus. In a town of 6,000 people, I know because I lived there, there are thousands and thousands of people gathering to just worship Jesus and they haven't stopped for days. Nobody really knows what to call it. Some are calling it the Asbury Awakening, the Asbury Outpouring, the Asbury Revival. But friends, God is moving in a really profound and unique way at Asbury. And it's spreading. You can see all these other schools that have had like 24-7 worship going on. And you can just read people t- telling about their experience. There. It's like it was the most peaceful, kind, gracious, loving presence I've seen so many testimonies this week of what's happening there and honestly, I've just been weeping at the beauty of what God's doing in the lives of of thousands of people on campus at Asbury. There's no hype at this thing. They don't even have lyrics on the screen. It's just pure Gen Z students leading Gen Z worshipers and, and a whole bunch of us older folks are just being allowed in the room as these people are leading and it's beautiful. There's no celebrities. I heard like there's like worship celebrity, like, you know, the Christian people that, like the songs we sing are like, hey, can we come? Like, yeah, you can totally come. There should be room in the auditorium for you. Jesus is leading this thing. And I'm humble enough to admit that I've been so stirred and moved by what's happening there. And my, my faith has been strengthened and I've had to say, Lord, I am sorry that some of my prayers fervency have lacked to see you move in that way at times. Will you do that here? Will you move here? Will you draw thousands of people to yourself here? And so as I prepared for this message with what's going on around the world, I just needed to say to each and every one of us, myself included, that what Jesus does And what Jesus did in Mark 1, Jesus still does today. He still moves in power with love, with grace, with authority, with kindness, with peace to set those in bondage free. And that's the only reason we're all here today. Because the chain breaker breaks chains. And may the Lord move in our midst in a way that just disrupts everything as we are amazed at his kindness. Unlike Asbury University, apparently at some point in Capernaum while Jesus is doing all of this, someone's like, all right, guys, we're calling it a night. Um, probably Peter, right? Kind of sounds like what he would do. Or maybe Peter's mom um, that checks out from what I know of Peter. Um, like, all right, guys, shutting it down. You can come back tomorrow. Jesus will still be here. You can start the queue over there. And, uh, and, and they're like, come back. Someone probably said that, um, but Jesus had other plans. Mark 1 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where He prayed. And I want all of us to recognize that that verse is not just a filler. That's not just like uh, the details between the two supernatural, you know, like the, 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 the wire between the two telephone poles. That's not what happens there. This weekend is about how to engage with people properly. But when we look at the life of Jesus, how he engages with people is always the fruit of the life he's lived. And the root, the, the, the thing that nourishes his life is what we just read. Early in the morning, while it was still so dark, Jesus got up, left the house and we're told, went off to a solitary place. Solitary. Other, way, other places translated as lonely, desolate, uninhabited, lonely wilderness. And Jesus' keystone habit was pursuing the solitary place. Let me uh, remind all of us of Jesus' timeline up until this point. Have you ever thought about the timeline of Jesus' life? Scholars say 33 years, most likely the, the length of his time on earth. 33 years. And for the first 30 years of his life, we have three stories we have his birth, we have the trip to Egypt, which is sometimes combined with the birth, and then we have when he gets lost at the temple. 30 years, three stories, okay? 30 of 33 years are total absolute or virtually absolute obscurity. The entirety of his adolescent boyhood through to well into his adulthood is totally obscure. We don't know anything about what happened for a couple decades there. And um, by the way, there's a lesson in that for all of us. The obscurity in the formative years, but that's another message, hopefully for another day. Um, There was 30 years of preparation for three years of public ministry. Sometimes people will joke, you know, Jesus did 30 years of prep for three years. Most colleges are, you know, four years for 30, four years of prep for 30 years. So Jesus lives a life of almost total obscurity for 30 years. Jesus appears on the scene day one, he gets baptized and then he goes and becomes obscure again for 40 days, hidden in this wilderness, driven by God to the wilderness. He comes back on the scene after that, this is what we just read, comes back one day, preaches in the synagogue, does the thing with Peter's mom, does this after the sunset very early in the next morning. What does he do? He goes straight back to the place of solitude and silence. And when you read through the gospels and particularly try to pay attention to the rhythms of Jesus, it is shocking how frequently he goes to the solitary place. It is a regular part of his rhythm where he goes to a hidden place. to an uninhabited, lonely, isolated place where no one can reach him or connect with him. Anyone else find it really challenging that the place and space we most try to avoid, lonely, solitary, quiet, unattached places, is what Jesus most intentionally and regularly sought out? Anyone else challenged by the fact that the world we live in is one of constant volume, constant attention, constant visibility, constant reach ability, constant connectivity? And we just live in that, unchecked. And yet Jesus regularly and frequently breaks that cycle. I heard this week that humans can't really go 15 to 20 seconds of unplanned silence. How can we expect to live lives of consequence when our capacity for silence is less than a hamster's? I want to be clear though in this passage when we read Jesus goes to the solitary place. He's not just escaping from something, he's escaping to do something. He's not just leaving the noise of the world and going on this quest to find myself, this modern quest. What Jesus is doing is he's escaping from the volume to pursue something of meaning. He's going to pray. Jesus had the volume of the entire town at the door the night before And now he's counterbalancing that with solitude and prayer with God. Friends, do you know how loud our world is? Do you realize the volume of our lives? Do you realize how much our phones draw our attention? And how many things cry out for your allegiance? How many of us have 15 to 20 seconds of intentional silence a day? Not many. Get in the car, turn the podcast on, the music on, get to work and talk. We just don't have silence and solitude. I love, like I love this world that we live in. I'm not the anti-world, like I love our world. I love Calgary. I love our society. I love our country. But I'm just so aware of how cleverly created it is to distract us into absolute irrelevance. And we only realize this when we break the cycle and choose to live differently. The brilliant philosopher scientist Blaise Pascal famously said, "All of humanity 's problems stem from man 's inability to sit quietly in a room alone." Really, it's humanity 's inability to sit quietly." In a room alone. As dramatic as that sounds, what he's pointing out to is that solitude and silence is not just retreating and hiding from the world, retreating into silence is actually confronting the world head on. It's telling the truth about this world, it's discovering who we are discovering what's going on. And there are things in all of our lives that when we live lives of distracted volume, we don't even know what's going on in our heart. If you were to sit quietly for two minutes, what would come to the surface? Many of us don't know. If we were to sit in five minutes of silence to reflect on something that happened and we're like, why did I respond that? We don't even know. We have become detached from ourselves because we're distracted. We need to normalize retreating and prayer. Henry Nouwen says, solitude in prayer is not some therapeutic get happy pursuit, but rather it is the very furnace of transformation because solitude with God enables us to disentangle ourselves from the world around us. How beautiful is that? Prayer and solitude with God allows us to disentangle from the world around us. And without this practice, we get so enmeshed in the currencies of our world and we can feel like we're a boat thrown around by the waves. Henry Nouwen says later on that when we pursue solitude and intimacy with God, we no longer become victims of society because we're confronting it head on. That's a compelling life. We all need to normalize obscurity We need to normalize hiddenness and silence. And I know how hard that is. Our world operates on an ecosystem of attention, an ecosystem of presence, visibility, and hyper-awareness and hyper-connectivity. And we need to normalize obscurity. So Jesus does. And while he's in the middle of this solitude, in the middle of this prayer, the disciples, they find him and they rush on the scene and they're like, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. And doesn't that just seem like, oh man, that's loud compared to the solitude that Jesus was experiencing. You know, they were probably full of excitement, right? This is the beginning of Jesus Messiah campaign. They come on the scene like, Jesus, CBC, CTV, TMZ, NBC. He heard about what's going on. They're here and they want to interview you. They want to put you on their Instagram story. Come on, Jesus. Chaos and volume. But Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The first thing we see in his response, we read Jesus replied. And I want us to notice he didn't just react, he replied. And that is a key difference because when we familiarize ourselves with God, living in relational connectivity with him, we can respond and reply to the world around us. We can live differently, We're not just victims of the onslaught of the social environment. And we don't have to have the crisis and chaos of the world be our crisis and chaos. And we can reply because we operate from a different place. There is a stability of soul that comes when we're connected with God. Jesus was stable enough, he was differentiated enough that he was not at the whims and wishes of the world. He didn't just live at the demands of the many, he was living, he was living with the clarity and the purpose that we're all looking for. He wasn't escaping or hiding or ducking from responsibility. He just lived with the capacity to handle The pressures and expectations of others, and not be buckled under the burden of them. He recognized the need, the demand, the requests, but he wasn't beat down by them because he knew who he was, he knew what he was called to do. It's unbelievably compelling to me that out of the intimacy with God, he responds oh, we're gonna go somewhere else to the other villages so I can preach there. I mean, like, imagine the scene here. The entire town, everyone was at the door waiting for him, right? Everyone's looking for you. And Jesus is like, we're going somewhere else. Can you imagine how many people Jesus just ghosted like he left them all on red and he just went because he knew he says i we're going over there that's why i have come he knew his purpose he knew his calling he knew where he was meant to go he knew what he was about and he didn't have to live under the pressures and expectations and desires of everyone else It's also beautiful to note if you keep reading in Mark 1, the next encounter Jesus has is with one leper. So Jesus leaves an entire town to go and be with one leper. Unbelievably counterintuitive. I remember hearing all the time growing up, you can't be everything to everyone but you must be something to someone. And if we don't have the kind of clarity of who we are and what we're called to do and the life we're called to live, we will always try and be everything to everyone and we'll never be something to someone. What is the something that you're called to and who is the someone that you're called to? Jesus went to one leper rather than an entire village. That would be the opposite of any advice on how to build a campaign to change the world. But Jesus knew what his life was about. And we see the truth that Jesus is way more interested in the quality of encounter rather than the quantity of encounter. Jesus wasn't interested in just doing like a blanket healing over everyone and saying, see ya. He was interested in personally encountering people. Jesus had clarity on his identity and what he was called to do. And so to all of you today in this room specifically, I wanna say that in a room this size, we can all be at risk of being distracted by the quantity And we can miss the fact that Jesus wants a quality relationship with you. Individually, he wants to encounter you. Jesus is far more interested in the quality of our encounter, of our discipleship, of our commitment to him than merely the the quantity of people in our lives. So are you pursuing him? Are you trusting him, worshiping him for who he is? Jesus is after our hearts. Are we after his? And do our practices show that? Do our habits show that passion? Because he cares about us. Jesus wants to be a something and a someone and an everything to you. And out of that, we can go and do likewise. Several years ago, uh, I had the chance to go to the, to the Middle East, to Syria, actually, where we were praying. Um, and I spent some time in Syria. And we went to this monastery that was in the middle of the desert. And uh, this, des- this monastery was uh, specifically dedicated to solitude and retreating from the world. So the monks would go there and they just retreated from the world in totality. They had these little tiny windows where visitors, pilgrims like us would come and they would meet with us. And um, during one of these breaks uh, for the monks, we had this conversation and um, our one of our guides, um, I think the best way to describe it is he has far less fear of putting his foot in his mouth than I do, okay? Um, he has no problem just speaking. And so uh, he puts his hand up talks to this monk and he's like, dear brother, how on earth can you call yourself a follower of Jesus when all you do is live out here in solitude and never actually talk to anyone about Jesus? And without missing a beat, the monk responds, dear brother, How on earth can you possibly call yourself a follower of Jesus when you never actually follow Jesus into solitude and silence and prayer with God? All you ever do is be in the city. I just want to say both are right. We're called to the city, but we also need to follow Jesus' example, to retreat into solitude. And silence. And if we are at risk of going into one of the ditches, it's likely that we are going into the ditch of being too busy, too connected, too distracted to encounter a life of solitude and silence. We are enmeshed and entangled in all kinds of things that are robbing us of our humanity and our connection with God and our meaningful connections with the people in our lives. And so I just want to challenge every one of us, every one of us, can we intentionally strive to break the strings of attachment? Can I suggest to you all, turn your phone off for an hour a day to be better present to God and better present to the people in your life. And like literally turn it off. There have been studies done turning it on airplane mode or leaving it in another room doesn't have the same psychological effect. Like turn it off. Start with an hour. Oh, an hour, that's scary. I can't do that. What if I have an email or a text or a call comes through? Turn your phone off. Hide from the world. I dare you to make it really hard for people to find you. Follow the way of Jesus. But don't just like retreat and escape. Pray and immerse yourself in God's word. Immerse yourself in the right kinds of relationship. You can see at times when Jesus does this retreating, he brings people with him. But hide from this world. Make it hard for everyone to find you except for the right people. And then as we do that, we will emerge with ongoing clarity about how we are to live and to reply and to respond to the world. But if we can't be present with God, we will never be present with people in the ways we're meant to. Let's cultivate the right kind of presence. To end, I just want to return to what I was talking about earlier. Um, I pointed out that there were some people in the gap between the all who showed up and the many who were healed, right? The whole town gathered, many were healed. So there's a gap there. I want to talk about that gap. First, it's a good reminder for all of us that we don't just approach and worship Jesus to get something transactionally. We go to him because of who he is. We retreat and pray to him because of who he is. But there's more than that, that this can teach us. Remember that everyone showed up. Everyone who was sick showed up. And when you keep reading throughout the gospels, when you keep reading throughout the Bible, you read in Matthew chapter nine of Jesus going back to Capernaum. And you read this story of some friends cutting a hole in the roof and they drop a paralyzed man down in front of Jesus. Because that's his hometown, which means he was in that gap. Everyone's getting healed, and that paralyzed man wasn't. Down the road, Jesus met him. You read in Mark chapter five, Jairus' daughter was super sick. And eventually she dies. That was her town. She would have been in that gap in Capernaum because all the sick were there, and she was sick. She was left behind in Mark chapter one. But Jesus eventually raised her from the dead. The woman who bled for 12 years was from Capernaum. She would have been at that door, left behind. Everyone's getting the miracle. And she's like, well, what about me? Down the road, Jesus encountered. She reached out and took hold and said, Jesus, I need what you have. I've seen it for everyone. I've been left behind before. It's not happening this time. In Matthew chapter nine, we see Jesus healing two blind people, Capernaum. My point is this, there were all kinds of folks who were left behind, left in the gap in that first encounter, but Jesus returned for them. Jesus never forgets his people. And so if you are in that gap today, I implore you and I beg you, don't stop following. Don't stop trusting. Keep on going, friend. Keep on pursuing, keep on trusting, keep on going, because Jesus never forgets his people. Jesus is never late. He always keeps his promises and Jesus is always faithful. And we may be in that gap until we're forever healed in glory, but keep on going because Jesus keeps his promises and he still changes lives and he still heals. Jesus is who he says he is and he does what he says he does. So let's keep showing up to worship him for who he is so we can go to this world and be a something to someone and tell them about the beauty, the glory, the majesty, the transcendent, the present love of our God every day of our lives.